listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Todd Womack, the CEO of Bridge Public Affairs. Many people know Todd as Senator Bob Corker's chief of staff. Prior to going to work for then-Mayor Bob Corker, Todd began his career as a public relations specialist at Erlanger Medical Center and then as director of public relations and employee communications at Unum. Todd, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we talk about your career path, let me ask, what's in your morning cup? Whatever Keurig puts in those little pods, I guess. So it's coffee. And, you know, I, I it's funny. I didn't like coffee until I went to Erlanger and I was so poor. The only thing that was free was coffee. And so <laughs> I learned to like it with cream, a lot of cream. And I'm down to no cream, just coffee. But anyway. So, so you're drinking it black. And drinking it black. Yeah. Caffeine. Uh, oh, of course. All day long, caffeine. Yeah. I drink too much, probably. Do you know which pods you're drinking or you care? It, I've started to be a little more discriminating. I think it's Starbucks, probably. Oh, um, well, there you go. Yeah. That's a good yeah. Pod. What are you drinking? That is Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a decaf guy. Oh, you are? Yeah. yeah. I just, I like the taste. I did caffeinate for so long and I think it finally just wired me out. And so I drink up until about 10 in the morning and then I'm on to my water. There you go. Well, that's a lot healthier. Well, you've got an interesting career path, and I know you grew up in Chattanooga, went to UTC, and we talked about Erlanger, but let me go back to, you were a communications major at UTC. I was. Did you imagine, or did you have a vision at that time where you would be today, the path you took? No, I didn't, and and that's kind of, I guess, true of my life. I don't know that anything was really plotted out or whatever by me. There was a divine force there that certainly affected my life and career path. But, you know, I was an English major, actually, in which I thought, yeah, get a degree (laughs) for reading and writing. I mean, that's pretty awesome. And then I finished that up a little early in my time and then realized I probably needed to get a job at some point. So I added communications just as surely together that leads to some profession and but had no idea. You know, it's interesting with your response. I've asked a couple of people that question, and very few have a master design. It's more of, well, I took this job and I worked really hard and I did what needed to be done, and it led to these other things. That's the advice I give to my kids, right, is um, I had one job that I didn't much like. Outside of that, I also haven't had a job that I didn't wake up every morning feeling like that I wasn't integral to what was happening, so I needed to give it my all and that I didn't love and, you know, was happy to work on the weekends or whatever. And so I think being passionate and having purpose beyond just that job, I mean, that you're working for a really a higher calling, I think is really important in all of that. But giving it everything you've got does, I mean, it's true of, you know, when you manage people, it's the folks who absolutely give their all are the ones who get promoted, right? So I think doors have a way of opening up. Most of the doors that opened for me, I was drug kicking and screaming through them, thank goodness. So I'm not very smart, but there wasn't a master plan exactly, but I'm really thankful. Well, in probably the most prominent of those doors, you'd been at Erlanger and you'd been at Unum, and suddenly you're into politics. You go to work for, I assume you started with the campaign, or was it after uh, Senator Corker was elected mayor? It was right after. So I'd gone over to Unum and was running their employee communications and an old boss of mine called and he had been involved in then Mayor Corker's uh, campaign. And he said, hey, they're looking for a communications director. 
I'm going to throw your name in the hat. And I said, you know, my wife was expecting our first child. I was like eight months into a new job. And I said, I appreciate that. It's just not a good time for me. I'm going to pass. And he said, okay, well, I'm going to give him your resume regardless. And I said, I wish you wouldn't do that. And he said, (laughs) a couple days later, I get a call. Will you come down to the mayor's office? And that was about a two-month kind of conversation process or whatever. But when they call, you go. And again, it was one of those kicking and screaming moments. But so, so rich an experience. Um, I started actually in August of 01. He had six agenda items he'd run on, and he wanted all of them launched before the end of that 2001 calendar year, none of which included the waterfront, interestingly, but they did include causing Enterprise South, where Volkswagen is now, to be developed, enhancing service at the airport, bringing a digital vision, which is now the gig, making UTC more vibrant in the community and a job creator, all those sorts of things. And then September 11th happened like a month later, which changed everything, of course. But, you know, those four years in the mayor's office were probably the most meaningful. You know, at the local level, you can do so much, especially with a mayor who's willing to throw deep. And it was a wonderful, wonderful time. When I was in leadership Chattanooga during that time in the Riverfront Project, I remember we were over at River City and Mayor Corker at the time was going over the project and someone said, well, why are you doing such a big deal? It seems like it's almost impossible to get done. And I don't remember the exact quote, but it was basically either go big or go home. That's right. If you're going to have a vision, have a bold vision. You know, at that time, our downtown had transformed to a large degree, but the big thing we didn't have are, you know, retail, grocery stores, and really nobody lived downtown. Housing that got built both at the Chattanooga Green across from the pier and then going up First Street to the Hunter. But other than that, There really wasn't much downtown housing, almost none. And of course, that's changed a lot. And so, you know, you needed to create a big, big vision that was about not building parks or adding to the aquarium or the hunter or whatever, but really creating a vibrancy in a city. That's really what that was all about. And it had to be big to really work. Did you know, I keep on going between mayor and senator. (laughs) Corker, you can just call him Corker. He'd like that. Did you go to Corker at all before you went to work for him? I didn't, no. So- What was the process of gaining his trust? And what I mean by that, you are now one of his most trusted advisors. You've been with him a long time. It's funny. After about a month and a half, I remember saying to my wife, how long do you think you need to stay in a job for it not to just look terrible that you left? Because I think he's probably going to let me go pretty soon. In fact, Mike Compton, who had been with him for a long time, called me in his office at one point and said, hey, I just want to tell you that Corker's just a little bit... uh, regretting his decision to hire you. That's a heck of a thing to hear. Yeah, it was a little weird. And I said, what do I do? He goes, I don't know. I mean, you got to go figure it out. But I just felt like I should tell you. And I said, well, so it was bumpy in the beginning because he was driving really hard. I, you know, really didn't know what I was doing. I was giving it my all, but, you know, I was learning as I went. There was a moment in November or December of that year, though, where something clicked. We went through a crisis together. And in my experience with a lot of really great leaders, you've got to kind of be in the foxhole with them. You've got to go through a really difficult time. You got to kind of have staying power to make it to that moment. And then how you perform in that really difficult period of time and what you give uh, becomes appreciated. And I think for us, that moment, At the end of 2001, something clicked, and I think I gained his trust. He certainly gained my loyalty. 
we've been together about 20 years and, you know, I've seen a lot of leaders, met with a lot of leaders at, you know, locally, state level, nationally, internationally. He was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. I was staff director for that committee. So you had a lot of people kind of coming in and out. He is most unique and his ability to not just be a visionary, but execute on that vision Mm -hmm. is unlike anybody I've ever seen. So I'm obviously an enormous fan. Yeah, well, it was obviously a good door to go through kicking and screaming. It was. But the point being, you had to buckle down and work, too. And it's not that you weren't working hard, but you had to figure it out, as Mike Compton said. That's right. I mean, he didn't give me much advice, (laughs) but he gave me a great little warning, and I'll always be grateful for that. And he was right. His advice to me actually was great. It was, I can't tell you what to do to gain, you know, his confidence. I can tell you, you got to go figure it out. And figuring it out usually involves staying with it, working hard, and proving yourself over time. And a bit of introspection, too, because I think a lot of uh, people, when they're starting out, are looking for someone to say, okay, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And what Mike Compton did was say, look, I can't tell you how to do X, Y, and Z, but I'm telling you, you're not going to get to A if you don't figure this thing out. And uh, really gave you the opportunity to do it your own way. That's right. And the relationship wouldn't have been the same if somebody had given me a formulaic way of doing it. Now, Corker might deny all of this, so <laughs> that's always possible, but it was a great life lesson for me. And actually, as we would have other staff, people would come in and say, how do I connect, whatever. And I would give similar advice. You've got to, you know, it takes time, but you'll know when it happens and it's a powerful moment. Yeah. You talked a little bit about the 21st Century Riverfront Project. How did that birth? Well, in 2002, We had thought about, it had been many, many years since a mayor had done what's called a state of the city address. And we said, you know, it might be interesting if we did something like that. And so Corker was like, I don't want to do something just to give a speech and, you know, platitudes or whatever. I want it to really be meaningful. And do you think anybody would even come? You know, that was one concern. But we decided to throw deep and, you know, go big, go home. And at the same time, River City was looking at, you know, Ross's Landing was tired. There really wasn't much happening there. There was a four-lane highway running between Ross's Landing, really, and the aquarium. It was not inviting. Oh, it was 40, 45-mile-an-hour speed limit through there, too. It was, or 50, I think, actually. Yeah, it was fast. So, like, big trucks. I mean, you took your life in your hands just (laughs) trying to cross or whatever. So they did this big public charrette, I think, in February of that year, and they asked people to come in and give their thoughts on what would make sense. And so 200 people show up, you're at tables like this, lots of them, and people are giving their input or whatever. You have onion skin paper and architecture kind of drawing your your vision on. And Corker began to say, then he went down actually on a Saturday and was looking, it was at the riverfront. It was basically just a black asphalt, nothing kind of deal where the Southern Bell would dock or whatever. And he said, this is pathetic. This is just a parking lot with litter blowing across in essence. And Ken Hayes was at River City and we'd gone to him and said, we knew it was about a $120 million plan. And we'd had a conversation with the aquarium, the Creative Discovery Museum and the Hunter. And we said, if we were to take this on, we would want to do one ask, not Hunter raising money and aquarium raising money. and Competing against each other in a sense. That's right. One ask, if we take the lead on that, will you all Put your donor list together, unprecedented. We ended up getting agreement. And so that May 22nd, I remember the date, uh, 2002 speech, Corker announced the 21st century waterfront, $120 million plan. 
we didn't even own all the land yet that was going to remake the waterfront. And we were going to not use one penny of taxpayer dollars. We we're going to figure out how to do it without touching the general fund. And we were going to do it all by 2005. So afterwards, people came up and wanted to know how we were going to do it and actually said, I know that's just aspirational. And Corker said, no, no, that's not aspirational. We're doing it. And we did. The rest is history. Yeah. Yeah. Another seminal event I want to touch on a little bit before we get into your other roles, recruiting Volkswagen. Really the linchpin, I think, economically for Chattanooga, particularly because it came at a time when the Great Recession was coming. And because of those efforts, we were able to recruit major car manufacturer. Yeah. Well, you know, we worked very closely with county mayor at the time. And that's one thing I will say, a city mayor and county mayor who are joined at the hip publicly. And look, Claude Ramsey and Bob Corker talked most mornings at like 7 a.m. on the way into work. They didn't always agree. And they had times of, you know, where one wanted to do one thing, one wanted to do another thing. All that, nobody knew that though, because they worked those things out privately. Publicly though, they were unified. And that's so important you know, for our community to have mayors pulling the same way who are um, focused on economic development, focused on on building the community. It's, it's right for them to debate, you know, behind the scenes. But yeah, I think that's been hugely important. Not every community has that. But we worked very closely with Claude Ramsey, who was county mayor at the time, to really, you know, we didn't like talk about it much then. You can now, but they made munitions. And didn't they actually make the munitions that were dropped on Nazi Germany? Ironically, yes, yeah. they did. So the site had been basically shuttered by the U.S. Uh, military DOD because it had a lot of environmental problems, and so it was just off limits. We worked very closely with Claude in the county. They'd been working on it before, but just to accelerate the speed at which we got control of that land and we were able to clean it up. And then Phil Bredesen was governor at the time, a Democratic governor. You had kind of a Republican County working together. He got us the interchange that now exists going into uh, Volkswagen there. And the other big thing we said during that time is we are not going to split the site into little parcels. We're going to wait for a big fish. That was controversial at the time. A lot of people said, well, wait a minute, let's go ahead and uh, get whoever we can get. If they want someone's 50 acres, give it to them, you know, whatever. And we said, no, we're waiting for the big one. So recruiting Volkswagen actually occurred after we got to the Senate. There's an event here in Chattanooga that Corker and I were at, and after the chamber had asked to meet with us. So we met with them, and they said, we hear Volkswagen is looking at building their first manufacturing plant in the United States. They haven't had one since they were in Pennsylvania in the 70s. And there's a guy named David Genicopoulos in D.C. who's kind of leading the charge on that. We have not been able to get to him. Is there any chance y'all would see if you can do anything there? Corker said, of course, we'd be glad to do that. So I called David out of the blue and said, Mr. Genicopoulos, uh, you know, I'm Todd Womack with uh, Bob Corker, Senator Bob Corker's office. We'd like to meet with you. And he said, okay. <laughs> he said, why? And I said, we want to talk to you about Volkswagen's expansion. He goes, well, I can't really talk about that a lot right now, maybe in general terms. And I said, that's fine. When can you be here tomorrow? <laughs> and uh, and so David came down, and by the end of the meeting, he said, "If if we were looking for a site, because they couldn't really say that they were, Chattanooga will be on our list. We will commit to you, Senator, that we will come look at Chattanooga." And there were several events. There was a big event at Corker's house. We had Senator Alexander down, Governor Bredesen, all there when the decision makers were in, and it was 
quite an event. I mean, there were a number of things that led to that happening. And one of them, you know, Mayor Littlefield at the time and Mayor Ramsey also did yeoman's work in taking the topography out of Enterprise South because the Germans were having a hard time understanding how the land could be flat. I remember when they started clearing that. Actually, it was a news tip that all these trucks were headed towards Enterprise South. And the thing they did that I thought was great was put the webcams up. Yes, it was. And they were watching from Germany. Yeah. I mean, they basically, all the public works action in the city stopped <laughs> and in the county stopped. And every truck available was out moving dirt. The community came together and said, we want this. And I agree with you. It, Volkswagen is a huge turning point for our community, I think. And certainly there's great potential for even more. You know, through this process of whether it was the riverfront, whether it's Volkswagen, even in your positions, the common thread is relationships building those relationships, being able to pick up the phone, have someone take your call. Life is all about relationships, isn't it? I think that you're exactly right. And um, we're talking a lot about Corker. One thing I learned from Corker, and Lamar Alexander used to laugh about it. He would say, sometimes I see Corker at 8 a.m. and he's talked to five world leaders or, sorry, he's coming to the podium he's on the phone with Petraeus because he was never afraid to call if he needed something. And certainly... The waterfront wouldn't have gotten done without relationships. Mm-hmm. Bruce Saltzman had been, was a TDOT commissioner who allowed us to trade Riverfront Parkway for a stretch of Highway 58 because the state said, we won't let you turn this into a anything but a four-lane highway. That relationship is what really made things happen. So I think it is. I mean, at whatever level you're working at, burning relationships is really unwise and uh, <laughs> fostering them is so important to success in life. Yeah, because you never know when you're going to need that person. That's right. Or or come across them again. And the last thing you want is something there that's going to prevent you from getting something done. And I think, you know, when the chips are down, don't you remember the people who were there for you? Absolutely. Uh, And yeah, you're exactly right. I know we're spending a lot of time talking about the Senate career, and I only got a couple more questions on that. But you were in a lot of rooms that a lot of people don't get to be in. At what point do you look around and go, Oh, my God, I never thought I'd be. Was there a moment like that for you? That was pretty much every day, if you want to know the truth. I mean, it was, uh, you know, banking issues or foreign relations issues or certainly political issues. But from a relationship standpoint and just a experience standpoint, you feel like you've won the World Series of being able to really get to know folks. I think one thing I realized is what you see on TV is not the way it really is. I mean, people especially at the federal level, they have to perform a role. They have to say certain things. But behind the scenes, you know, it's always interesting to me, somebody who has not been elected, especially to a legislative body, how they say, I'm going to go up, I'm going to fight for my constituents and all those things, and which is great. But then you realize after a little bit of time, you see that they're a little different because they've gotten to know their colleagues and they realize their colleagues are doing the same thing. And the only way you're going to get something done, now you may not be able to say it on cable news, but is to find areas of confluence and agreement. But every day I would kind of pinch myself and wonder how all that had worked out. Yeah. And one of those things that confluence that very bipartisan was your effort to established the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery. Talk a little bit about where your interest started and how that whole process began. Well, there's a church in Atlanta we go to sometimes when we're driving through called Passion City Church. And Gary Haugen, who runs International Justice Mission, they're probably the biggest anti-trafficking, anti-slavery organization in the world. 
they helped really shine the light for me on this problem. And I didn't realize, I thought slavery was something we dealt with back in the 1800s. And yet there are more people in slavery today than any other time in the world history, 27 million to say 40 million. I mean, it's very hard to know. It's not like they're reported. That's right. Both sexual servitude and bonded labor. And often those go together. But you know, actually more, about 74% of slavery is bonded labor where you've got, you know, somebody who you're making work and you're not paying them. And then about 26% is folks in the sex trade. That's more prevalent in the United States than like true bonded labor, although both exist here. So I heard a talk by Gary who basically said, you know, God's plan for justice in this world is kind of a crazy one. His plan for justice is you. You know, it's kind of on all of us to That'll make you think it did. And I remember <laughs> I was running, I would jog in the mornings, running around the Capitol. And I thought, man, I hope somebody hears this talk that can do something about this problem, somebody of influence. And that was the first thought I had. Then the next thought I had is, wait a minute, is there something I need to be doing? So I went back to our staff and said, is there anybody from IJM who ever comes in our office? And they said, yeah, they're here all the time. And I didn't even know it. Right. And I said, is there anything big that they're looking to do that we could help them with? And so we called them in and they said, well, we actually have been looking for somebody who might champion something, but it's really big, really hard, this Global Fund in Modern Slavery. And um, we could bring Gary in to talk about it if you'd like. And so we brought Gary in. Corker and I went to dinner one night and I said, I'd love to tell you about this. He embraced it immediately and it became just this passion of his. It was a passion of mine, but he had to embrace it for it to work. And, you know, it was one of the hardest things we ever did, believe it or not. It seems like it should be easy, but we were able to raise a lot of money and really raise awareness around the world around this issue. So, I mean, we didn't solve it. And uh, now the United States has imposed penalties on companies who are buying products that are the product of, of forced labor. labor. It gets really tricky and like supply chains are super murky. I mean, you go buy a bag of, say, cat food at the grocery store. It's hard to know where every... You know, with some of the fish that's in that cat food, was it produced on a ship where you've got people enslaved who were catching the fish and figure out that supply chain is very difficult. Just maybe that one thing, but then that product's tainted. It's tainted. And so there's work now being done that you'd almost like a good housekeeping seal of approval. You'd have this product doesn't have any slave labor component to it or whatever. So there are a number of folks locally, uh, too, who've really embrace this, especially the domestic side of this, but it continues on in great ways. We were just privileged to be able to touch it to some degree. And I think one of the lessons in that for people who may be listening to this is you were able to build that relationship and trust that when you had an idea or something like that, that you could bring it to Senator Corker and have him listen to you. I think that's an understated thing that people don't totally understand about working with their boss building that relationship to where you can have a give and take where it's less boss subordinate than it is really peers. Yeah. Good point. I mean, you got to have a boss like him who really, you know, I think about our staff during those days and how he wanted to be a sponge in a lot of ways, soaking up their ideas. I mean, you got to work for a boss who's willing to listen to and fortunate to have that experience. Yeah. And there's a lot of different types of bosses out there. Not not everyone's like that. Part of it then, too, is being a boss who Mm -hmm. realizes there's no corner on wisdom. And if you're smart, you're hiring people smarter than yourself. And, you know, it's easy to not listen, right? It's easy as a boss not to listen. And, but 
you gain so much by listening. I always had a saying when I was managing people, and it's a little bit trite, but my goal was to be the dumbest person in the room. I wanted to find as smart people as I could and allow them to do what they do best, because that's where, in my opinion, success comes from. Totally. Well, and if that was my uh, my mantra, it, it was not difficult to, to, to achieve that, for <laughs> no, sure. not at all. <laughs> well, you did 12 years in the Senate. Senator Corker decides not to run again, and you launch Bridge Public Affairs. Talk about that. Yeah. You know, it was a tough decision not to run again, but once he pulled the trigger, we had about 18 months before the term ended and wanted to end really strong and well. I also felt an obligation. We had about 67 people who worked for us. and That's a big staff. It is. And I wanted to make sure everybody had an offer before we left. And if they didn't take the offer, then, you know, it's kind of on them to go find something. But we worked pretty hard through that process. And all but I think one or two, the day we left office had an offer and everybody ended up doing great. And that is one thing. I mean, you may have a moment where this opportunity is ending, but all of them are doing even greater things. And so it is amazing how that happens in life. So don't panic. Great things happen. It's got to be fulfilling for you, too. And even now, of course, what I do, sometimes I call them asking for things, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, it's it's so neat to see where they've landed. But I was fortunate because I was able to pull a few folks and say, hey, I'm starting a firm and would you want to you know, join me? And so there was a, a group of us. We've got an office here in Chattanooga, one in Nashville, one in Johnson City and then in D.C. And so in the beginning, most of them were former corporate staff. It's changed a little bit, but it was really neat to be able to create something. Uh, it's called Bridge Public Affairs. We do government relations. We register to lobby at the federal as well, the state level. And then um, we also do a lot of strategic advice, strategic counsel in the government relations space, just helping people think through problems. Sometimes we help get a piece of legislation passed. Sometimes you've got a client who is concerned about a piece of legislation passing, you know, and so there's some education there may be a, a law in it. We used to love having lobbyists come in our office, believe it or not. And I've been an apologist for lobbyists because I am one, I guess. But <laughs> um, because what they're paid to do is maintain that relationship. And yes, they are advocating for a client on an issue, but you know they also need to be able to explain, here are the pros, here are the cons. We think the pros outweigh the cons, maybe, but you know we're going to shoot straight with you because we're going to be back at some point and maintaining that relationship is awfully important. Because if they're just hammering it one way, you're not going to listen to them in the future. That's right. So it's been fun to build our business. We've got a great, uh, we're called multi-client. So we don't specialize necessarily in one sector, but help a lot of different companies um, doing a lot of different things. So anyway, it's been great. How's it feel not to be getting on a plane Monday morning flying to D.C.? <laughs> it's funny. You know, I did that for 12 years. And the first year we were in business, I kind of kept up. Yeah. And then COVID, of course, hits. And it was, I don't think I realized, like family dinner, I didn't really do because I wasn't home. So I've got an amazing wife and four kids, and I didn't really sacrifice, but they did. And I think one thing COVID did do for a lot of us is slowed us down. And I'm still on the road a good bit, but there's no reason to stay an extra two days if you don't need to stay an extra two days or whatever. And just being more intentional about, you know, travel is important. But, you know, fortunately, too, it has opened up digital opportunities to get business done. So anyway, it's nice. I go plenty of Monday mornings still, but it's nice not to go every Monday morning. And to your point about COVID, it's taught us ways to connect that we didn't think of before. 
And now we have a hybrid version, and it actually makes us more efficient. It makes actually quality of life. You don't have to travel 90% of the time. That's right. And you can pick and choose a little more. And so, yeah. A couple more questions for you. Native Chattanoogan, what's Chattanooga mean to you? I um, chose to, we chose to keep our family here when I was in the Senate. We could have moved to D.C., but um, we wanted to raise our kids here. And so, you know, I, I was willing to go back and forth every week. And, and I think it was good. Um, it's good to have somebody on your team getting out of the, the bubble every week, the D.C. bubble, too. But Because that's real, isn't it? It is real. It's good to have a little perspective, but, you know, I'm so excited about Chattanooga and it has changed a ton in my lifetime. I think we have an opportunity. You know, you look at Nashville, it, it's blown up. Atlanta, Chattanooga's in the middle. We are going to grow whether we like it or not. I like it, but I think we have the opportunity to grow in a smart way. And I hope we will do that to be thoughtful about some of the infrastructure needs we have. But I am very um I just think it's a great place to live. It's a great place to raise family. But it's also what's fun is that young people are coming back. You're coming back. So, you know, there are tons of opportunities for jobs here that didn't used to exist. So uh, Chattanooga is on a lot of people's radar right now. I bet you in the last six weeks, two months, I've met at least four different people who have moved here, whether it was from Chicago, whether it was from L.A. or any other areas, and not necessarily with a job. Because of COVID, they could work remotely, and they moved to Chattanooga without knowing anyone because they liked what they saw. They liked the quality of life. They liked the outdoors. They liked the fact that it was in a no-income tax state. They loved everything about it. There was an article that came out that the county grew by 5,600 people last year, and that was, I think, top five in the state. Yes. Yeah. Uh, going to get to the last question before I do. I do want to remind our listeners, you know, you've made it this far. You obviously like what you're hearing, so subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platforms and give us a review. All right, last question. Think about this a second. What would you tell your 25-year-old self is important for a happy life? You know, I think I would tell my 25-year-old, I just turned 50, so I'm double that now, but probably tell my 25-year-old self what I'd tell my 50-year-old self because I still haven't learned it, and that is... The future has a way of taking care of itself, and you can worry about it, but it probably doesn't really impact it that much. Um, if you can focus on today and the time period you're in, if you can really focus on that and give that your absolute best, doesn't mean you don't plan for the future. It doesn't mean that you're not smart and wise and all those sorts of things. But I find myself, I think I know I did it at 25. I was trying to grow up. I wanted to be, um, you know, at 25, I definitely wanted to be 30. And, you know, life goes fast. and all the worries I had about the future, the future is better than I ever expected it to be. It has a way of taking care of itself. I think God has got that. And, uh, and there's no way I can impact it really from this vantage, but I can impact it. So I think it's focus on today's problems and really give them your all and don't worry so much about the future. But I'm still, I still haven't quite learned that lesson. Well, your lesson in mine's exactly the same because I've struggled with that over the years. I always worried about what's next. And my wife and I were having a similar conversation the other day about it. And I said, you know, if we could just be like dogs, they're just happy in the moment. They don't know what happened yesterday and they're not worried about what's coming through the door. They know you're home and they're going to enjoy being with you. And I think that's such a big lesson to live in the present. It is. Yeah. They know they'll have, I mean, they assume they'll have food in the dish, you know, tomorrow, but they know they got it today and that's really what matters. And yeah. 
I hope I can convey that to my kids, although I'm afraid I don't model it very well. <laughs> well, that's the struggle of being a parent. Todd, fascinating conversation. You've got a really interesting career path, and I appreciate you sharing it. Well, thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're doing this, Mike, and fun to get to share a morning cup with you. Oh, absolutely. Thanks so much, Todd. Thank you. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.